of the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. The 16th and 17th are in the nature of supplements and the 18th is a conclusion. The practical difficulty when we want to change from the ignorant and shackled nature of man to the dynamic freedom of the spiritual being becomes apparent when we start on the path of yoga. We have been told quite emphatically that this transition is indispensable. So long as we are bound by the strands of the gunas, we are not free to act in the liberation of the spirit. So we have to become trigunatita. Yet we are also told that every action is instigated and colored by the gunas. Guna guneshu vartande. How then can there be another type of dynamic yet spiritual action which is untinted by the coloring of the three gunas? To act is to be subject to the three gunas. To rest in the spirit is to be silent and inactive. The Lord himself, though untouched by her modes, yet seems to act only through the psychological mechanism of prakriti. These three are the fundamental properties, the executive force behind the action of prakriti. Yet the Gita insists that the liberated man has to act above the gunas, nistrai gunyo bhava. In fact, the Lord clearly says that liberation means a deliverance from the confining cage of Prakriti's modes and an action and a living and a movement in the eternal, infinite spirit. Sarvadha vartamanobi sayogi mai vartate Wherever he may go or whatever he may do, that yogi lives and acts and has his being in me. The opposition which we find here is only because we are still analyzing everything within the bonds of our guna-bound intellect which has no conception of any other type of action. When our level of consciousness increases we will come to realize that the modes of prakriti are only the forms of her lower nature, a convenient mechanism to achieve her intricate design. What moves the world is not really these modes, but the divine spiritual will, which makes use of the modes to achieve its purpose but is itself not confined or dominated or mechanized as is the human will to any of these inferior conditions. When the weaver weaves a cloth using the three different colors 
of white, red, and black. A child watching the three shuttles moving hither and thither and bringing out the different designs might imagine that the shuttles were the main agents for the production of the cloth. But the fact is that the weaver is only making use of them to suit his purpose and is in no way bound to use them in any particular way and is free at any time to change the design. The liberated soul who has attained the status of the master weaver, Mama Sadharmya, can also act in this perfect manner. No doubt, since these moods are so universal, they must proceed from something inherent in the divine itself, for everything in the lower nature is derived from the higher spiritual nature of the Purushottama. Something in the essential power of the spirit must be the cause for the sattvic light, the rajasic kinesis, and the tamasic inertia. Just like sunlight, when it passes through a prism, changes into the seven hues, But, obviously, these colors existed in the sunlight, in the beginning itself. So also, all this clash and struggle, sin and sorrow, is only the spirit in movement. When it passes through the prism of the ego and is deflected to all these technicolors, of pain and pleasure. But in its pristine quality, the divine will, like the pure sunlight, has no colors of its own. It has no desires because it has universal possession. It has a spontaneous ananda of bliss and is unwearied by its ceaseless movement. It holds all knowledge in itself, and that is the source of its ananda and mastery. The soul that lives in God acts by this spiritual will and not through the rajasic mechanism of nature. Now what about the tamas we find in nature? That tamas is what is mistranslated from the eternal calm and repose inherent in, in the divine into the laziness and stupidity of the tamasic mind. There is an eternal repose in the divine even when it acts, the repose of the karma sannyasi who makes all to act even though himself remaining inactive. The peace of the Godhead is not a vacant inertia. It is an omnipotent silence. The liberated soul 
enters into the skull and participates in the eternal repose of the spirit. That profound tranquility can remain even in the midst of the most violent action. The calmness of the liberated man is not an indolence or an insensibility. It is full of power, capable of all action, attuned to the deepest delight and open to the profoundest love and compassion. Also, beyond the light and happiness of the sattva of the lower nature, which though admirable, yet is maintained rather precariously, since it may be overpowered at any moment by the forces of rajas or tamas, is the luminous spiritual ananda and harmony in which there is no gulf between action and knowledge, since both proceed directly from the divine will and nature. We see then that action is possible without the subjection to the degraded functioning of the modes of nature. The dharma of the inferior law of nature can be replaced by the immortal dharma of the spirit. But this transition has to be effected and the Gita declares that it can be effected through the full development of the sattva guna when it reaches a point at which it can go beyond itself and disappear into its source. To make this point clear, in the 16th chapter, the Gita makes a distinction between the two kinds of beings, the Deva and the Asura. The Deva is capable of a self-transforming sattvic action and the Asura incapable. The general nature of the human being is a mixture of all the three gunas, so it would seem that all of us stand an equal chance to proceed beyond sattva into the liberated state of the God-man. But in actual fact, we see that men above a certain level of purely tamasic action fall largely into two categories. Those who have a predominance of sattva in them and turn automatically to knowledge, self-perfection, harmony and benevolence. And those who have a preponderance of rajas who are filled with ego, dominating with strong will and powerful desires for the satisfaction of which they try to dominate and put down everyone who stand in their way.
these are the human representatives of the devas and the dhanavas or the gods and the titans these are the two opposed opposing forces which are apparent to us in the world they are but two aspects of a single force the thesis and antithesis the former the devas moving towards the center and the asuras surging towards the periphery of names and force one centripetal and the other centrifugal these are the two impulses in each one of us also we have a strong urge to get to the center of things to find out their essence that is why we have an unquenchable thirst to know more and more our love for knowledge is endless it never gets satisfied we seek freedom from ignorance finally but at the same time we seem to be working for bondage because the other urge is also working powerfully in us at the same time we are like people whose legs are pulled in opposite directions at the same time there is a battle going on everywhere at all times between these two forces the daiva and the asura there is the universal power of integration driving the soul towards the absolute and the psychic rational and sensory powers urging us towards indulgence in the material world this is the mahabharata war and the ramayana this is the conflict we see everywhere in ourselves in the streets in the country in the land in the world these powers struggle one against the other and the history of the world is the story of the success or failure of one or other of these powers the royal road to evolution the way of salvation lies in cooperating with the powers of integration the daivi sampa the asura is that which pulls us away from our centers and converts us into objects when we are the supreme subject itself the first few verses describes the divine qualities this helps us to assess how far we have progressed in the daivi sampat or divine qualities the first quality mentioned is abhaya or fearlessness in an atmosphere charged with the negative emotion fear good qualities cannot grow the army has to be guarded from the rear as well and it is humility that guards the rear in the previous list humility had been given first preference 26 qualities have been enumerated and as has been said before 
if the ego or ahankar rears its ugly head, the other qualities would become null and void. Hence, the Lord's insistence on humility. Fearlessness, purity of heart, a firm upholding of the yoga of knowledge, charity, control of the senses, sacrifice, study of the scriptures, penance, honesty, harmlessness, truthfulness, absence of anger, renunciation, peace, non-criticism, kindness to all beings, indifference to the objects of the senses, modesty, shame in doing wrong, faithfulness, brilliance, patience, resolution, purity, absence of malice and humility. These are the qualities of the Devi Sampat. The verses 10 to 20 give a graphic description of the Asuric nature, but it must not be stressed to carry more than it means. This distinction between Deva and Asura is not comprehensive of all men, nor is it rigidly applicable. In fact, we find that the tamasic man falls into neither category. The normal man is a mixture of all the three gunas of nature, but one quality is generally pronounced, the one in whom sattvic qualities predominate can be known to have daivi sampat, and the one in whom rajas has been carried to its extreme is the asura, absolutely selfish, living for the aggrandizement of his body alone, arrogant, hypocritical, given to bursts of anger, cruel, devoid of compassion, boastful. Even the yetnyas and pujas he performs are for his own aggrandizement. Does this mean that we are created with certain inborn qualities from which there is no escape. After listening to the whole of the Gita, how can we conclude this? All souls are eternal portions of the Divine. Both Asura and Deva can have access to salvation as has been brought out many times in our Puranas. Prahlad and Vritra, who were born in the Asura clan, were the greatest devotees of the Lord. A man can be either sattva rajasik or rajaso tamasik, which prepares him for either divine clarity or asuric violence. One leads towards that movement of liberation which the Gita stresses, the other leads into bondage. This is the point of the distinction. 
the Gita here rises above the ordinary human concepts of morality and takes its stand on a metaphysical ground. What we call good and evil are our human readings of the meanings behind the great drama enacted by the cosmos by those impersonal powers which alternately move inward and outward. Thus we find in the Puranas that at one time the Devas win and at other times the Asuras. So also in the human mind we have this twofold urge within us. The more we move away from the center, the more we are moving towards what the Puranas call hell, since sorrow is the fruit of selfishness. Heavenly regions are gained by those that move towards the center. These cosmic forces work perpetually and they work everywhere so that nothing is free from their operations. The evolution and involution of the universe are the working of these two forces and our human mind cannot perceive why they are working in this manner since our minds are already involved in their workings and thus cannot comprehend their intentions. The evolution of the soul in nature is an adventure in which Sobhava and Karma are the chief powers. When the Sobhava is Rajasik, then the Rajasic qualities get the upper hand and the trend of karma results in a turning away from the sattvic heights into the highest exaggeration of the Rajasic nature and hence a full-blown asura is born. One has to read the Puranas to have some idea of the birth of the Asuras. Once he has taken such an enormous turning away from the Sattvic cause, he is incapable of reversing the process and is plunged into the depths of hell by the very force of the misused divine energy working within him. Hence Prahlad, the Asura boy, who is yet full of daivic qualities, tells his father Hiranyakashibu, the complete Asura, that his very might is due entirely to the power of the Lord Narayana, who allows him to wield his sword in this mighty fashion. The Asuric nature, having plumbed the depths not once but many times, gets the opportunity to take a new turn since his speed has been checked. And he get, gets an opportunity to turn to the light 
and then only the other truth of the Gita comes to force that even the greatest sinner is saved the moment he turns to adore and follow the God within. Simply by that one orientation he gets into the sattvic way which leads to salvation. This turn is generally brought about by some great and compassionate soul who appears to give a hand to the unfortunate sinner. Hence the stress in the Puranas on satsang or the company of the good and holy. Valtmigi, the author of the Ramayana, was a cruel hunter whose life took a completely new orientation after having come into contact with the sage Narada. The Asuric nature is the Rajasic at its height. It leads to the slavery of the soul in nature. Desire, wrath and greed are the powers of the Rajasic ego and they are the triple gates to hell, says the Lord. These three fold back into the power of tamas or ignorance finally. The unbridled force of the Rajasic nature, when exhausted, falls back into weakness and the darkness of the tamasic soul. To follow the law of selfish desire is not the truth of our nature. There is a higher law and more just standard. But where is this to be found? The human race has always been seeking for this just and high law, and whatever it has discovered has been embodied in its Shastra or rule of knowledge. The rule of man's right relations with man, God and nature. Shastra is not a mass of superstitions unintelligently followed by the tamasic man as some people suppose. Shastra is the knowledge of the saints gained by both intuition and experience, the best standards available to the race. The Asuric man who leaves the dictates of the Shastra in order to follow the dictates of his own underdeveloped instincts and selfish desires may get some pleasure but never happiness. For true happiness can only be gained by right living and living in harmony with the rest of creation. The law of instinct and desire may work in the animal world, but man lives by a higher law. The Shastra is a rule of conduct which man has set up to govern his lower animal instincts by reason and intelligent will and must be first observed 
and made the guide for his conduct and action until his instincts are schooled and controlled. Only after many births of such schooling would he be evolved enough for the highest supreme law and liberty of the spiritual nature. The Shastra in its noble aspect is not that supreme law. Like the laws of Manu, the Ten Commandments, etc., the Shastras provide a rule for the transcendence of the sattvic nature and develops that discipline which is an essential basis for the spiritual ascent. It is a means and not an end. There is thus a distinction between action according to personal desire and action according to the Shastra. The latter is the recognized science and art of life, the outcome of man's collective culture and religion, generally expounded by some great soul in every age. Action according to the Shastras allows the growth of the sattvic element, so mankind must perforce proceed through this. This is the general rule of humanity everywhere. The way out of the Asurit nature is to follow the rule of the Shastra. Blindly and in a tamasic fashion, in the beginning, perhaps, but later, when these rules have been embedded in our personalities, then slowly they will rise from the first tamasic blind obedience into the rajasic inquiry and need for so-called moral living, and finally the sattvic acceptance of such a life based on knowledge. The Shastra is thus the rule of ethics, religion and right conduct, or the rule of the best type of social living, founded and codified by the saints in every society, country, age and time. Everyone living in a society will have access to some type of Shastra or other. The human race has always been seeking for some just law of action which can free it from the bonds of its Asuric nature. For every man has an Asura lurking within his bosom and therefore Every culture will have its own formula for right living based on the intuitive experiences of its masterminds, the sages and the prophets. The Asura leaves the observance of this rule to follow the animal instincts of his base desires. Therefore, 
if he wants to reach Godhead, he has to retrace his steps back to manhood first, and that can only be done by following the dictates of the Shastras, which are the highest and purest guidance available to every man in every country. The Shastras must therefore be first observed and followed until the instinctive Asuric nature is schooled and the habit of self-control is made a part of his nature. Only then would he be ready for a freedom of self-guidance leading to the supreme liberty of the spiritual nature. The Gita itself is called Yoga Shastra for it supplies us with a practical guide for the transcendence of the sattvic nature and a development of that discipline which leads to the highest spiritual enlightenment. Hari Om Oma Sadoma Sattamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Mritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 From the unreal Lead me to the real, from darkness to light, and from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace.